0: Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to Park Springs Bible Church. As we uh, have uh, started off with worshiping together and now uh, moving towards uh, jumping into the sermon, I'm grateful that you're here this morning as we begin our sermon. You might ask yourself, well, why Nehemiah? And I'm curious as I've been walking through and studying this book, and imagine many of us, or at least a few of us, have had a, a history of people or pastors preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And what do you anticipate every time a pastor starts to preach about the book of Nehemiah? It's a building project, right? Like we're going to ask you for money because we've got some capital campaign that we're doing because we want to build something, right? And even maybe we've, we've, we've even seasoned it a little bit by entitling the sermon series called Built to Last. Um So uh, we've wet your palate a bit, and and I want to tell you that because I want to compete against it. The book of Nehemiah is not about primarily building something, specifically even something earthly. What God is doing in this entire book is walking us through the reality that circumstances, suffering, and sin are all used perfectly by the sovereign providential God, to bring about building lasting change in the hearts of men and women who follow him. So here's what we're jumping into. There are things in the context of these chapters that God is going to use to expose areas in our own life that need to be pressed against, that need to be broken down, that might need to be rebuilt so the challenge in the book of Nehemiah is really looking at it through the lenses of the heart. How is God dealing with the hearts and minds of the people who are his followers. So what I want to do before we jump into the text itself, and you're more than welcome to get there. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter one. So you can look through, please use your scripture journals. I will say to you that if you don't have a Bible, please let me know. We've got a collection of them here at the church that we would love to pass off to you because we want the word in your life. So before we jump in, there's some essential themes, four of them, as I've seen, looking through my study of the book of Nehemiah, that I think are going to be things that, as Jared and I preach through this series, will consistently and regularly be re visited. And so what I want you to do is to consider writing down these four themes. And as you look at the scriptures, as you read the book of Nehemiah for yourself, as you listen to the sermons that are preached, what I want you to do is just consider how consistently these themes crop up. Number one, we can never see suffering and keep it at arm's length. God doesn't position us in places to look at the world around us, whether it's believers who are suffering or non-believers, the world as a whole, we don't have the ability as followers of Jesus Christ to look at humanity's suffering and say, I hope it works out. There's an equipping of what the Lord does through our understanding of our relationship with Jesus and the, the potency and the power of the gospel to affect change in our life. Where we would realize that in the, a world of over 8 billion people, that you and I live in Arlington, Texas or the surrounding areas, we find ourselves interacting with people on a daily basis. And in those interactions, is it not at least worthy to consider that the very person that you interact with on a, what seems like superficial level, and maybe even just accidental or coincident exposure to someone else's life, and you become aware of their suffering, is it not plausible to suggest that the sovereign, providential Lord Jesus Christ has positioned that person in your life for a reason. And it's not to say, I am so thankful that I'm not them. <laughs> FYI. That's not the point. The realization that anytime our eyes are aware or our lives encounter any suffering of any humanity... The gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ and the potency of his word compels us to engage. Anytime we see suffering, we can never keep it at arm's length. Nehemiah is going to turn that over in very significant and, in my own life, very challenging ways. Second, humanity is alive and well inside even the most faithful Of followers. (laughs) What I mean by that is that there's a level of duality, if you will, of our own nature. So we desire to deeply honor God. There's a heartfelt longing to seek God's will and make decisions that honor Him on a regular basis. And yet, even in God honoring decisions, sin is still alive and well. I can be motivated to honor God and at the same time seek to desire things in my own life and seek approval or my own sin in conjunction with those things and make honorable decisions and still realize that my heart needs to be changed. There is sin that is alive and well in every single one of us. And so because of that, the book of Nehemiah is going to absolutely capture our attention where you get individuals that are just ordinary individuals seeking to serve God, meeting challenges and meeting opposition. And usually what we want to do as we look at a book like this, is we want to make Nehemiah the hero of the story. We want to say, man, what a man of faith. What a, I could never be like that guy. And that's the exact opposite of the purpose of God's calling Nehemiah to engage in this situation. And the challenges that he's faced is that he's an ordinary guy realizing that God is calling him to walk by faith and do things that he's calling them to do. And that even the sin of Nehemiah is going to be exposed to this book. Ezra is going to be another aspect of this story. He's going to uh, deal with things in good godly ways and then also not so great ways. What we want to come to the realization as we walk through the book of Nehemiah is that humanity is alive and well, not just on the pages of the scriptures, but in our own hearts. There has to be a willingness as we walk through this text to come to an admittance that sin still has an ability to operate and is still operating in our lives. We confess that we need change. We admit that the Lord is doing great things and we make honorable decisions, but there is still a a being conformed to the image of Christ that is critical as we realize that, that we are those that are being called to be faithful to the Lord, but also in the process of being faithful, there's an authenticity that we bring to the table. I'm first in line to admit that I need more work done. There is more surgical work that has to be done in my heart even as I desire to faithfully serve the Lord. Nehemiah is going to expose those things. Number three, followers can focus on incredible God-ordained projects, but then end up missing the God who called them. What we would call being destination or project focused. We are tempted to focus on the project rather than be God dependent. And I, Often, I think for many of us who are driven and like to see a goal accomplished, and so we we set out goals and we, we structure our lives to see those goals, and even those goals are good goals, things that we want to do. I want to raise my family in a faithful, honorable way. I want to disciple my children so that they fear the Lord and love Jesus with their whole life so that their lives are leveraged and that they're willing to do whatever the Lord calls Would anyone say, yeah, that's a good goal? Of course, we'd be like, amen, attach my life to that, I'm in. Here's what happens in my mind as a parent. When they veer from that, when they move away, when they struggle with their own brokenness and their own challenges, and I know I have perfect kids, but if they struggled with any of those things, then what would happen? For me, it would be like, I've blown it, I'm a bad parent. Or even worse, if they succeed, here's what I would say. Man, Aaron and I did an awesome job. You should come to our next family conference so we can teach you to do what we did. You see how sinister these things are when it's not about a daily realization of our dependence upon God. We get focused on the end goal and miss the reality that Jesus and God are the ones that are calling us to a deep and abiding relationship with him, and he's the one in charge of the end product the end product is your transformation and mine, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, right? That we'd present every man mature in Jesus, right? There's a, a development internally that's critical above and beyond behavior modification. The book of Nehemiah is about building a deep and abiding dependency upon the work of God, above and beyond hoping that the work of God looks like the outcomes we desire. That's where the struggle is, right? Because when we're praying for outcomes and desiring things to look a certain way, who's in charge of what it looks like? We are. And so then we ask God to meet our desires and have it look the way we want it to look. And when it doesn't look like what we want it to look like, we can grow disappointed with God not showing up. If God's driving the bus, then what it looks like is fully and completely dependent upon him. He knows where we need change. And he's the only one that can instrument that change in our life. So we get project focus and sometimes miss, if not often or always miss, the fact that the goal is God and his glory, not our own. Number four, are you guys excited about this series now? You're like, I thought we were talking about building walls. And now all of a sudden you're dealing with my sin. Well, hang on because it's going to be a long series. So, um Uh, Number four I think is critical as well Is that God produces change Through the brokenness of others And ourselves So here's what often I think Nehemiah is competing against And other portions of scripture too as well Is that we look for God to work In specific ways And our hope is that As God works We will have to deal With less less and less Brokenness (laughs) What if I were to suggest to you that the more God works, the likelihood is what you'll see in your own life and mine and in the world around us is greater brokenness, greater need for Christ. Those who are maturing in their relationship with God don't need God less, they need God more. And so it's not as though we come to church or we encounter the word and it's like going into the mechanic shop and we have the check engine light and they put a little diagnostic code in and they figure out what's wrong and they fix it and they send you on your way. That is not and never will be the Christian life. You don't need to be fixed, you need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. It's not as though he's repairing what's broken, he's transforming a sinful condition that needs consistent change this side of heaven. You will never leave this church fixed. (laughs) FYI, just not going to happen. There's going to be a level of development and consistent reflection of what the Lord's doing through circumstances, brokenness, and sin of others that leads us to a realization of the magnificence of God's character to care so much that he wants us to change. And doesn't just want us to change, like here's what should happen to you and writes out a checklist. He wants to change us. How magnificent is that to even consider, that the God of the universe is so intentional, so precise, so unique in his care for each and every one of us who are his followers, that he is forming and fashioning us, not with some level of expectation that we're going to be all cookie cutter Christians and all look the same. There's a level of uniqueness in which he's shepherding our hearts. And so your struggles and my struggles are going to fundamentally be different. But God has the capacity and the resources to know what we need and the ability to make that happen. Our goal is surrender, trust, faith, Lord, do what you need to do. So here's big picture, right? Every circumstance, every sin we encounter with those among us and every sin we encounter in our own life, is leveraged by a perfect holy God to instrument change in worship in a God who is perfect. It becomes about his glory and not our own. The challenges we face in relationships, the issues we have in businesses, the frustration, fears, and longings and worries we have in life itself are the very places the Lord is working. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you're not already totally excited about where we're going, uh, it's harder to read when it's dark, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, let's see. I might have to read from on the screen. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem, and he said to me the remnant there in the province who had survived exile and in the great are in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Let me just set the stage a little bit about the situation that's happened. You have two groups of people that exist, and this is likely written around 446 B.C. So the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians in 586. There had been this huge uh, Babylon had been taken, had taken out all of these Jews and specifically leaders to Babylon. And over the next 140 years, they were forced to figure out how to live godly lives as Jewish followers of God in a world that was completely and utterly pagan. No temple, no place to worship, nothing that they could do. There was just a level of consistency in which I feel like I'm in a disco. There's <laughs> co- consistent challenges where we, we find ourselves, uh, they found themselves just trying to, to seek God, but, but feeling the, the weight of their sin and a, a level of isolation from, from God. And so in the process of those things, in the the province of Judah, eventually, like it happens with every empire, someone else bigger and better comes in. Someone else shows up to the playground, bullies them around, and the king of Persia now shows up and takes over. Persia has a fundamentally different military strategy. Babylon, take all the leaders and get them out of the country, and then we'll just take over. Persia had this kind of softer approach that they felt like the way to ensure that uh, those would be uh, compliant with their new rules and restrictions is allow some of the exiles to go back to their homeland, allow some freedoms for religious worship. And in the process of the freedoms of religious worship, they would then no longer fight against the occupying country. that's what happened. There was a a, a remnant that had always been in Jerusalem. There had been a remnant that had always stayed there that never left and never got pulled out to being an exile. We'll we'll call them the the non-exiles. Then the exiles were allowed to slowly come back in a few different waves. And so now Nehemiah is in a situation where he's actually serving the king of Persia. Interesting. He has a very significant office and position in the context of serving the king of Persia. He's called the cupbearer of the king that you'll get at the end of chapter one. Now, what does that mean? He just carries around a cup? No, he's basically the guy that tests all of the food and all of the wine to make sure that no one's poisoning the king. Bit risky, but great food and great wine. Right, Like he's got a pretty cush life if you think about it. But still, there's a level of concern that at the end of the day, how are the non-exiles or those who made their return first doing in Jerusalem? What does life look like for them? And the report is, it's bad. The Followers of God are not doing well. The walls are in shambles. The remnant is suffering. The non exiles haven't done anything about the broken down walls. It's as though the glory of God is tarnished. He hears about the suffering. Remember theme one, right? You can never see suffering and keep it at arm's length. Nehemiah is absolutely gutted at the news. And here's his response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Now listen to this. You should circle this. Which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer of the king. You get this cascading reality of where Nehemiah starts when he hears about the suffering of God's people. Now, there's no newscast. He didn't get some bulletin in the Wall Street Journal. He wasn't able to see it on Facebook or Twitter, right? He doesn't actually see the suffering, but he hears about what's going on and how bad and what desperate state the people of God are in. And it compels him to grief, a a weeping, it says, for days. And there's a part of us that's like, come on, man, get your act together. Just figure out how to fix it. Here's where I think often we need a little bit more space to wrestle with our own suffering or the suffering we see around us. I think what Nehemiah compels us to is that grief is an appropriate response when God's people no longer care about God's ways. Grief is an appropriate response when God's people no longer care about God's ways. Why do I say that? Ed Stetzer wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. (laughs) And one of the things that he's really fixed on trying to address is this volatile, angry responses to the world around us. You flip through Facebook and some of the most aggressive things that you have heard have likely come from Christians. I'm not targeting anybody. I'm just saying that there's an awareness that we live in a culture that's regularly ticked at everything. Like it feels like we're armed for bear. We've got our boxing gloves on our back pocket, and we're just waiting for someone to say something that we disagree with, and we are ready. We've got all the talking points. We've got all of the things that need to be said to actually push this person into the ground and tell them how foolish they are for not agreeing with what we agree with. And what ends up happening is we miss the person and their own brokenness. I don't think we've grieved over the state of our country or grieved over the affairs of the world around us. What's ended up happening is we've actually internalized it to the point where we've said, I've got to fix it. (laughs) We've then made ourselves little G gods and decided that somehow, even though we know that we have brokenness inside of our own heart, remember that theme, right? Every single one of us needs to realize that it's not just the brokenness of others, but our own, that those two things are operating, the work of Christ in our life and a desire on him and our own sinful flesh that we have. So the thought that we could 100% with accuracy be so self-righteous that we've got this right and everyone else has it wrong makes us little g-gods. And the point is to say, when we hear about the suffering and the challenges around us, The reality is to move towards an intimacy with God, a level of godly grief that disarms our own self-righteousness that wants to just fight for what we think is right. And I'm not saying that there's not moments to speak out. Please don't hear me. I'm not suggesting that we don't have a thing to say or that truth doesn't matter because truth is essential in all of these things. But the truth comes from God's word and God's word tells us that people matter that more than they matter about positions or situations that remember we're positioned in the world around us to see suffering and brokenness and everybody is bringing brokenness to the table. There's a class that I'm going through right now with a few other people in the church. And one of the things that we've talked about recently kind of resonated in us. We are always unequivocally without exception, always counselors and in need of counsel. Unequivocally. Like there is not a place for the sense in which I stand up here as an expert. That's not true. The goal is to drive us into the source of all truth, which is God himself. And so what this ends up generating is a level of, I think, Nehemiah chapter 1 is a case study on empathy. Where are you or where am I on the continuum of compassion? When I see hurt and suffering, Nehemiah could have certainly, and he would have been likely somewhat accurate to say, look, the non-exiles, they've done nothing for 140 years. They've made their bed. They got a lie in it. That's what we would want to tell ourselves. Like they've made this mess. Now they need either me to fix it or someone else to fix it. That is not Nehemiah's response. There is a level of godly grief when we look at the fact that some people, if not all of us, are so consumed by some of the things around us that seeing outside of that seems so unlikely unless God moves. So the theology is not they made their bed, let them lie in it. The theology is they might have made their bed, I'm going to move in, pick them up, and take them to Jesus. The only source of hope and help in the midst of utter and complete devastation, grief, is a legitimate and appropriate response when we look at a church that's decimated. Now, we could look at the evangelical church across the United States of America, and you could 100% find pockets of being like that, Is broken 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 and the sense is not hey look we do it right here we've got it figured out our walls are pretty good we are so thankful that we're not like that no that i mean that that pride and self-righteousness is so utterly dangerous and destructive the goal would be to weep at the state of how the mission of Christ has been marred by sinful man. But that is not the end, right? Jesus is still at work doing mighty things. So empathy and humility are aspects of emotions that God calls Nehemiah to in Nehemiah chapter one. There's an interesting uh, quote that I'd like to read from you, uh, read from you, oh my gosh, read for you. How about we try a different preposition this morning? and it comes from a theologian who is really trying to address this sort of ivory tower theology. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you have people who, I don't know, are experts who are really, really smart. A whole lot smarter than me. And they write theology from the standpoint of information. Like, here's what more you need to know about God. And here's his suggestion. I propose... That theologians write theology from the standpoint of the mother in Bombay or Pittsburgh whose child has been starved to death. She would not be theology's primary reader and her situation would not provide theology's subject matter. Her rage and grief would provide its angle of vision. For there, let the theologian write about God. Write about Jesus, revelation, holy history, new pluralism, living word, love, loving plan, righteousness, church, justice, liberation, the sacraments, self-transcending authenticity, religious experience, the possibility of existence, and the Christian's triumph over evil and the resurrection. A theology written from that standpoint would have ceased to be a problem in itself. Ouch. Ouch. Right? Like that's the, the vision in which God is moving to compel Nehemiah to experience what he's experiencing. Grief is an appropriate response when you see the church or people in a dire state of affairs. And so what does he do? As he weeps legitimately, fasts legitimately, seeks God's will. Where does he begin? God fix this, God help these things, make it all better, make this go away. No, his prayer starts with God's character. Look what he says. I mean, as he has wept and fasted for days, the character of God begins to anchor him in what's real. And so he says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, you are great and awesome meaning that you were worthy of awe, that all of the world, if they saw you for who you are, would not stand as though they would be able to debate with you about how the course of events have transpired. They would stand in utter awe of your power and prowess. You are great and awesome. You keep your commandment, and has said your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. You are a God who not just says something, but you do what you say every time without exception. You have never failed, ever. Can you imagine praying that in the midst of seeing God's people in dire suffering? So he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. So here's how often we do it, right? We do some slingshot prayers every now and then, or at least I do. I see a situation. I know it's hard. I know we're walking through it and I'm like, okay, God fix it or God help or move. And I don't revisit that prayer on a regular basis. Nehemiah is saying day and night, I'm asking that you be the God that you said you were and keep your covenant promises to your people i just asking for your people to see who you are and you work in such a way because the only way anything is ever gonna happen, any transformation is gonna exist is I've gotta anchor my life in the character of God. When the storms of life come, when the challenges exist, when the unprecedented injustice intrudes in your life and you have nothing else to cling to, the only thing you've ever needed is to anchor yourself in the character of God. Remind yourself regularly. You are great. God, you are awesome. You keep your covenant promises and you have promised me that you were working in my life to instrument change. So when I argue with my wife and I say things I shouldn't say, if that ever happened, if any of those things ever took place, how awesome would it be to be reminded, God, you are covenant keeping faithful. God, you are great and awesome. You deserve all prayers. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes see what's really going on. So when Nehemiah says, let your eyes see and your ears hear, he's putting himself under that authority of God. He's saying, see what's in my heart too. He's not just saying, I want you to see the situation from my vantage point. Nehemiah is praying that Nehemiah would see the situation from God's vantage point. You see clearly. You hear clearly. I want you to see what's really going on. And I want that to even, that, that, that spotlight to be on my own heart. How do I know that? Because look what he says. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And then he even makes it more pertinent. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept your commandments or your statutes and your rules that you commanded to your servant. Remember the word that you gave to Moses. And so now, again, one of the critical elements is he's moving back to the word. And he's saying, okay, now as I look at the word and I want you to see everything and hear everything as it is, as you do, I want you to see my heart for what it is, but here's also what I want because I'm so familiar with the truth of your word, I can go back to the truth that you spoke to Moses years before. And you said, right, God, I just want to claim the promises of what you've said. Here's what you've said. If we're faithful, if if we're unfaithful, we'll be scattered. But if we return, you'll receive us back. You can hear the plea and this visceral desire in his life. God, we want to return. Now, you only hear it from Nehemiah's standpoint. You don't know what the non-exiles are saying. You have no idea. We've given no window of what they're praying for. But Nehemiah, as a representative of God's people, is essentially saying, we've blown it, but we want to come home. We just want to we we come home. And as we come home, here's what we're camping out on. You'll receive us back. You'll do what you need to do because you are a God who keeps his covenant promises. The character of God is what anchors us to what is real. And and here's really what I think the push of Nehemiah 1 is is he prays to God and sees God for who he is and 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 absolutely is just riveted on the truth of God's character. He realizes that trusting God is going to come at a cost. He is in a very comfortable position in the king's presence. I mean, the choicest of food and the best of wine. Now, certainly, as a cupbearer of the king, there's a risk that someone would try and poison the king. But if someone was trying to poison the king and they knew that someone was drinking and eating these things before the king was, they would likely find another way to assassinate the king. So you feel pretty comfortable that your life's not fully at stake. Maybe in some pockets, if some crazy person decided to do those things, but I mean, you, you get the best food and the best wine, and life is pretty good in the presence of the king. But, but here's what happens. As Nehemiah is aware of the suffering of God's people, the presence of an earthly king matters nothing compared to being in the presence of the real king. And so he moves. Everything is leveraged for the sake of following God. Why? Why? Because as we're moved to compassion for the suffering of the world around us, we're united with the heart of God and we're realizing that everything we have, everything from our children to our jobs, to our homes, to the lifestyles that we've built, all gifts from a merciful, gracious God who loves us infinitely. The question that I think we're challenged with towards the end of this text is how much do I want to hold on to what I have Versus how much am I willing to do or go or be or serve under the only one true king? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we can only serve one king, either the one we've made for ourselves or the true king. And so c- compassion is of greater value than comfort. That what, what the Lord is pushing against is, and I'm not saying, look, you ought, to be faithful, you have to sell everything you have and go live amongst the aborigines of Australia unless the Lord calls you, because if he calls you, then you should. <laughs> but I think what he's saying is that we have to live lives that are open-handed to the work of God. We need change. We need to allow the trust and the, uh, the, the reality of God's work in all of our lives to be instruments of transformation in our, grace, in, in our lives. And so w- what we want our lives to be pales into comparison to the life God is calling us to. We are poor visionaries for our lives because the visionary for our life is what? Retirement, vacations, life is good, and not those things are bad by any stretch, but God's plan for our life is that every aspect of our life is a mission field. We see suffering, we enter in. When we see the challenges around us, we move towards. When we think about the work of God, we realize that what we're banking on is the Lord's character. We're trusting that he is great and awesome. He's worthy of all of our affections and the process of those things leveraging our lives for his glory, not our own. Nehemiah is not the hero of this book. God is. Let's pray.